All right, we are accepting calls this hour from time travelers only. If you have traveled in time or you are presently a traveler to this time, then we want to hear from you. Otherwise, the phone lines are closed, but for that group, they are certainly open. Uh, with that in mind, uh, top of the morning to you on the wild card line. You are on the air. Hello. Hello. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Infinite Fringe right here on Apple Podcast, anywhere you can find the finest of podcasts, ladies and gents. I am Billy Ray Valentine, Billy the Kid. What is going on? Glad everybody is here today. I have a very, very special guest joining me today. I was just talking him up a little bit before we started recording and letting him know I'm like, yeah, I didn't even bother to reach out to you because I didn't think you'd come on. But uh, here he is. And, and shouts to Isaac Whitehouse, who... Uh, who created the connection somewhat because he let me know uh, that I should reach out, man. So shouts to Isaac. So I, I've been, as you guys all know, if you've been listening to the show, um, you know, I, I've been going over Steve Bannon for quite some time. I'm quite fascinated with Cambridge Analytica. I, I want to know what that was all about, right? And and uh, trying to figure it out has led me down to so many different roads, you know, um, and uh, the book, uh, that we're about to talk about today is one of them, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to talk about traditionalism. I, I want to get into that because, you know, people hear the word traditionalism and they think one thing, but it's quite another when it comes to uh, Mr. Steve Bannon and uh, people of that elk that think in a particular way. You know, so that's something I want to talk about. I want to talk about modernity um, and, and how that the struggle between the two has uh, has pretty much... Uh, dictated our political landscape for the past i don't know i don't know how long but definitely since 2016 man but uh benjamin tannenbaum and i probably screwed that up and i went over it twice twice with the guy thank you for joining the infinite fringe we're very happy to have you sir we're going to talk about your book war for eternity that you wrote on on steve bannon and uh, you uh sat with him and talked to him for several years putting this together uh we're grateful for that sir how are you welcome to your maiden voyage here on the infinite fringe we appreciate you what's up i'm i'm happy to be here billy it's great great to be with you fantastic fantastic so let's let's talk about this a little bit first first off i, I went on your wikipedia page right and uh it says you're an ethnographer right am i saying that and i saying that correctly ethnographer yeah ethnographer correct now new to me so i click on i click on it and i start looking at what it is and, and you know how do you get involved in something like that? What sparked your interest for this? Well, I was, I mean, what, what really sparked the interest, it's, it's kind of complicated, Billy. I was, when I was young, I was really into music and I wasn't into typical music. I wanted to go to college. My parents wanted me to go to college and I wanted to study music. I wasn't going to do anything else. And I was interested actually in, 
in traditional Scandinavian music, mm. um, which has a bit bit to do with my family background. Right. And if you are going to like really study that in school, the only place, the only way you can do it is through this, this field called ethnomusicology. Right. And in a way it was, it was, you know, it was kind of a trick on me because I, I just wanted to play the music. I wasn't that interested in studying it really. Right. Uh, but what they said is, okay, well, if you want to study music, that's not like classical music or jazz or something that we will teach you to play in, in college. Uh, then you get to study the music as like a cultural phenomenon. We're not going to teach you to play it well. And the way that you study it is, is by the, by going out and and studying the lives of the people who make the music and you and you you watch them it's kind of like being a journalist you could say but just more in depth and longer and the real goal is to understand the way that the people you're studying how they see the world right that's the way that that whole field works out it's the study of music and culture and but as time went on that method of research saying okay what i really want to know is you know, I don't want to myself, at, at least at the outset, answer the questions about, okay, what's good and bad and right and wrong. I want to look at another person and see if I can see what they see yeah. in the world. And in that method, I've taken, I use it when I want to study music, but I, I take it other places too. And that's what being an ethnographer is to me. Wow. Wow. That, that's interesting as hell. Um, Got to look up that type of music. I don't think I'm familiar. I'm a, I'm a big music head, but but a nice. more mainstream I, I do veer off the mainstream path, but that's, you know, that's my wheelhouse. I, I, yeah. I like contemporary modern music. Uh, nice. for like, what's up, buddy? Oh, I do too. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of weird and off, off, off the beaten path with that interest, but, I, but I like a lot of stuff too. Right. Nowadays it's, there's, there's not a lot of it for me, but, uh, while I was growing up, it, it was the thing, right. I, I was big into you know, alt rock or, or whatever hip hop was out at the time, you know, if it sounded good, I liked it. Right. So I'm, I'm still like that. I go to a ton of shows. That's uh, that's interesting as hell. How did yeah. this, how did this um, bridge over to what is being described as the far right? What's your interest there? Right. Because a lot of the, the, the characters that we're going to talk about today, you know, subscribe to what is perceived as far right thinking. You know, and have played a role in the rise of uh, of these uh, frame of minds of the of this way of thinking into the mainstream. You know, yeah. um, so uh, how did you get involved in that? That it's 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 also I'll, I'll try and be brief with it because it's also these are these are complicated questions with long stories, Billy. <laughs> so, um, hey, when take I, your time, man. If you need to flesh something yeah. out, go go ahead. So I grew up in Colorado. Um, I grew up in a in a in a part of the country. Um, I think that let, let's say for kind of like white America has, is, is kind of soulless, or at least that's the experience. There's just kind of no, there's no identity here. And that made me super interested in my roots. And I got very interested in studying Swedish and learning about my mom's Swedish roots. And um, so when I started studying Scandinavian music, which I talked to you about a moment ago, uh, I was also going over and traveling to Sweden. And I had this weird kind of relationship over there. Sweden is like one of the most modern, you know, secular, um, dry, postmodern societies in the world. Uh, and, and one of the consequences is that is, that, you know, they don't like nationalism. They don't believe, you know, uh, that Swedes, for example, are actually an ethnic group, um, you know, with a distinct identity. They're very, very quick to kind of pull that apart in ways that, I think in the United States, I'd, I'd find kind of refreshing, actually. So it's, it's kind of academic feeling. Uh, 
But I was over there um, and I was there to like find my roots, you know, and find my place in the world. And okay, you know, where, where do I belong? And you see these far right people there in Sweden, they were the only ones who were kind of t- speaking in the language that, that, that kind of, I was thinking in that, wow, you know, being in Sweden, my roots are, my grandparents are here. I belong here at the same time. Uh, like I had that relationship with them. And at the same time, I also thought, I mean, my politics are not theirs. I'm not a far right guy. It's, it's right. the exact opposite. And they kind of scared me. The other half of my, of my identity is Jewish. Which, which I, which I also was very close to. So seeing these neo Nazis walk around uh, was was pretty. It, it was it was a complicated experience, but that makes it interesting too, right? right. Um, you know, the things that interest us are not what are crystal clear. The things that I think grip grip us in life are the ambiguous. Uh, you know, the situations we can't find when we feel conflicting emotions inside of ourselves. So I was always interested in them. When I went over to Sweden as a graduate student later to do my dissertation research, it was right when the far right came into power in Sweden. Uh, a, a political party called the Sweden Democrats that had been basically a skinhead movement in the 90s. They come into power. One of the first things they say they want to do is they want to support Swedish folk music of all things. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I'm going to study this. And it turned out as the years went by, the deeper I got into the, in, into understanding that that their interest in music and a lot of the other groups interest in music had to do with internal ideological divisions in the far right, different Mm -hmm. ways that they cut themselves up and they were using music to say, this is who we are. This is who we're not. This is our past. This is our future. Um, And to make a long story short from that point, I came across, you know, all these different brands of far right thought. And a lot of my work was kind of mapping all that and saying, okay, what do they think about this, this, this one little brand, the one I paid the least amount of attention to was this strange subcategory that called itself traditionalism. Occasionally Mm -hmm. it also called itself identitarianism, but they were, they were not the skinheads. They were not the neo-Nazis. They weren't like the party guys in suits and ties who were, who were by this point, this is 2010. 2011, they were on their way to actually changing politics in Europe. You know, today what we see in France with Le Pen and Macron, uh, that march of the far right was really accelerating at that at that moment. But there was a little category of folks who were neither of those alternatives. They weren't joining parties. They weren't militants or skinheads. They were just weirdos. And and some of them were, had converted to Islam. Some of them were Hare Krishna devotees, yeah. Hindus, and and they weren't interested in forming groups. They weren't interested in making statements. They just kind of hung around, and that that was the little world, the ideological world that ends up uh, about six years later, uh, showing itself to be one of the most influential ideological ideological streams in the far right in in the United States with Donald Trump, in Russia with Putin. Um, in Brazil with Bolsonaro, arguably in Hungary uh, uh, through the party Jobbik as well. So that's that's the short of it is is through the music studies, I saw this little subcategory that that then shocked me by being relevant years later. Right. No, I get it. That's dope. Uh, that that uh, the journey that it took you through, you know, in order to get here and do what right. you do, because it's important. Your work is important. I, I want so many people to go out and read it and 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 and, uh, and study it because it's a. Uh, most people don't know. Listen, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what traditionalism was. If, if you would have told me, 
hey, what's traditionalism? Oh, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, being, you know, traditional, (laughs) you know, Um, and, and, and to some extent, that's true in relation to what we're about to discuss. But please, um, um, give us a quick breakdown of, of what traditionalism is. So if, if I can riff off of what you were just saying, right. Billy, like if somebody thinks, okay, a traditionalist is someone who does things the old fashioned way. I don't know if, if that's kind of like what the casual understanding is. Right. Take that idea in your head and try and make it as extreme as you possibly can make it. Right. Old fashioned, something that's like thousands and thousands of years old. Um, it, take the pessimism that you might have in your head. I don't know, your grandpa doesn't like new things. Take that attitude of pessimism toward progress and and make it a thousand times more extreme. <laughs> and, and, and you might have found yourself in a place kind of close to what we're talking about. Traditionalism, capital T, that's the only hint we get that this is something special. It, it starts really late 1800s, early 1900s uh, in France uh, with French, uh, Swiss philosophers primarily Italian, who uh, are looking for the most extreme alternative, or at least they find whether or not they're looking for they, one of the most extreme alternatives to modernity, to liberalism with a lowercase l, um, that that you possibly can find. And they, it's it's really a spiritual school, not politics first. They believe that ages and ages ago there was a true a true single religion, the tradition, capital T. Um, it got everything right. It was the actual truth of the universe and of, of history uh, and, and society. But as time went on, it's all of its truths are forgotten. Um, and, and little bits and pieces of its insight are scattered around and they're lodged in different uh, religious teachings. Uh, and, and really the only way to see what once was, that, that original tradition, is to kind of piece back together the insights of, of different religions that exist today. And it's mostly, it's mostly like the mystical branches or the esoteric branches of world religions. So if you're talking as Islam, then we're looking at Sufism, mystic Islam. Um, if it's Judaism, it's going to be Kabbalah. Mm. If it's Christianity, you're probably talking about esoteric Catholicism, some branches of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, but primarily their big interest, the, the religion that they think, incubated the most got the most of that old original tradition and held it was hinduism right so when i mentioned a moment ago that you know i'd always kind of weird out my you know journalist or academic friends and you know they'd say oh you studied the far right and i said yeah yeah i studied the far right oh that's terrible yeah by the way have you met the muslim converts and the hindu converts they people traditionalists would oftentimes devote themselves to one of these mystical branches but not thinking that it's the only way there's a term for that in religious studies which is religious pluralism um you know the kind of many pathways up the same mountain that you have to kind of choose a way to move toward enlightenment um and you can devote yourself to it completely but with the knowledge that it's not the ultimate and final exclusive truth in the world is this um could you say it's a universalism or there or are those two different things that's a great question i mean there are elements of universality to it yeah um with the belief that we all can be constructing and, and working toward a single truth, that's kind of universal. On the other hand, th- there's a competing, um, almost a separatism, right. distinctiveness uh, built into that, that everybody, yes, we're working toward a common 
truth. But the only way we can do that is by committing ourselves to our separate lane fully fully and completely. So both, both are true there. So I was was just going to say, I mean, the way that this all, this probably doesn't sound and like we're not talking about politics right now, right, Billy? We're talking about no, theories. This is, this, is, this is exactly what I want. You go ahead and do it. But the way that this gets into politics is, is when you start to look at what some traditionalists have said that old truth was. It's a couple ideas, really three that, as I see it, that come out of that old conception, that old understanding of the tradition that ultimately led them to take up political positions. Um, and, and I'll name three of them. One of them is a concept of cyclic time. One of them is the belief that instead of history moving from a beginning to an end, uh, especially instead of, of history moving from a past that was bad into a future that's better, progressivism, in other words, right. uh, in, in the kind of classical sense of the term, traditionalists believe that history moves in cycles and uh, that you're, you're always moving back to what you once were. And therefore, you're never really escaping or developing or changing in any meaningful way, right? So, uh, and, and beyond that, it, more specifically, traditionalists think that cyclic time is moving in a downward current for almost all of its elapse. Um, you move from a golden age to a silver, to a bronze, to a dark, and then back to a golden age again. That means that... Uh, if things start out good, a golden age, a golden era, it will gradually degrade. Uh, that process of degradation is is one of the reasons, that's part of the explanation for why the tradition, that old religion was lost, is as time goes on, time is equal to decay and destruction. Save for one split second when things get so bad, you're in a dark age, some cataclysmic explosion takes place. And you find yourself reset in an age of gold and then decline begins again. Diametrically opposed to modern conceptions of time where we have, uh, we, we see our past as one of oppression, stupidity, ignorance, moving toward one of, of justice, insight, enlightenment, and so on. So that's one, one of the big issues. The other one is uh, hierarchy, hierarchy of values, hierarchy of people and, and separations of people. Uh, some of your listeners, maybe if who are familiar with Hinduism, are going to follow what I'm saying here pretty closely. Traditionalists also believe that a, a, a proper society is organized hierarchically, that you have different people in different castes right. uh, whose destinies are allowed to be fully separate from one another. There's a separatism built into that and, and a trust and a love of boundaries a sort of religious value for boundaries between different types of people. But beyond that, they also think that a proper society is going to be ordered such that at the top of the hierarchy, you're going to have priests, a cast of priests, however you want to interpret that, that concept. But what's, what's key is that spiritual values, um, religious pursuits are going to predominate. They're going to be the definitive ideal for all of society. At the bottom of society, you're going to have people who are devoted to materialism. Um, That could be a merchant caste that just want to traffic in money and goods and stuff. And below them, finally, what is called a slave caste that is going to be devoted just to bodies, just to quantities uh, of of bodies as opposed to qualities of of priests above. 
Um, in, embedded in this is not just that that opposition. It's, 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 again, also a value for separateness and for borders. And there were certain, some traditionalists who added to the opposition, said that the priest of the caste on top is also masculinist in its disposition. Um, it worships the sun as opposed to the ground, which the, um, the, the, the sort of uh, feminine dispositions of the, of the slave caste were, were devoted to. Um, and even a racial dimension to it, to say that the upper caste were Aryans. Right. And for non-Aryans. And and that opposition, Aryan, non-Aryan, can mean a lot of different things. But by the time we get into the into the 1930s, let's say, in Europe, it's it's understood in pretty pretty standard racial terms. Not not exclusively, but what we would think of as being race today. Right. Um, and that that was one of the biggest shocks for me reading the book, because I, I'm gonna go ahead and speak for mainstream America here, right? <laughs> so Please, uh, uh, if I'm wrong, take it easy on me. But, but um, when you hear the word Aryan, yep, it gives you a, a particular, you know, uh, uh, you know, picture, right? Uh, th there's there's something that has been programmed, for lack of a better term, into people of what Aryan is supposed to mean. So. Yep. When you start talking about Aryan, I'm thinking about white people, right? You know, and, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and and to some extent, that's true. But um, you start talking about Hinduism, and I'm like, what do the Aryans have to do with Hinduism, right? And then I started looking into it, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know. But but um, I had no idea, yeah. no idea, you know. So oh. it di it didn't really make any sense to me why why a far right that sometimes sympathize with with um, you know um. Nazi type uh, uh, ideology, some of them, some sectors of them, you know, sometimes it's, it's very like, you know, racial, mm -hmm. uh, some of, some of the far right isn't that way at all, you know, so th there's different branches, exactly. but um, I'm looking at that. I'm like, why would they um, subscribe to Hinduism? It's totally right. different in my mind. Right. Go ahead and explain. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy story. It, it so if you look at like, let's say, because we, Arianism, the association with, with whiteness, let's say, that comes out of Europe really in the 1800s. It has the most sensational expression in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, but even before then, you had what were called kind of Indomaniacs in, in Germany and in Great Britain who looked to the upper caste of, of, of Hindu society, the Brahmins, and and saw some sort of commonality between them and let's say the Europeans. And there's not there's there's little traces of of truth in some of this idea that um, before a long long time ago there might have been a sort of single society that split um, into a, a number of different branches. One portion of it goes it invades India from the north. And, and they were calling themselves Aryans, and they eventually become the upper caste, the Brahmins of Hindu society. Other branches of them go, go west into Europe. Um, that, that's a, it, it's an imperiled history, but the, the things that make it somewhat plausible is that the languages moving from the Indian subcontinent up to Iceland, there's a, there's a sort of diagonal band going across the map in that way. A lot of those languages, the Indo-European languages, have the same root. There's more relationship between Icelandic and, and let's say Sanskrit in some ways than there is between Icelandic and Finnish. 
mm. or Hungarian. So, so there, there could be some, some common roots there, but anyways, that it, it still doesn't, it still doesn't justify this, uh, you know, quite this kind of racial history, right. but as time went on, the word Aryan that might have referred more to like a linguistic community and, and maybe a sort of religious community also starts to, to denote a racial community and Aryan becomes the term that's used for, it's like a synonym for Nordic. Right. Um, that the Germans and the Scandinavians seem to be the prime examples of, with some examples in in uh, in the British Isles, and and they tended to regard the Hindu Brahmins or Aryans as, yeah, especially the Germans, as some sort of lost, secondary, degraded version of their own racial community, but still a relative of it. Wow. Right. So, so that's, that's the way this works. Some others would say that, well, Hinduism, and there's, there's, there's evidence for this too, that Hinduism is one preserved branch of pre-Christian European paganism. Mm. Um, and you do see a lot of structural features in Hinduism that, that also reappear in Norse mythology, in Greek and Roman mythology. Right two that make you suggest they're all part of the same thing. But before we get too far, Billy, there's one last thing, one last thing I just want to talk about. So we talked about cyclic time. We talked about the, uh, about the hierarchy from, uh, from Hinduism. Right. Um, and the last thing to point out is, okay, so when you're in a dark age, according to that time cycle, the hierarchy that we just described is collapsed. Um, by the time you get to that point, um, it is a non-Aryan society. Everyone is mixing together borders and boundaries. You know, a hierarchy is structured and there are boundaries between people. All of that falls apart. And it's just one, one mixed mass. Um, materialist values reign. Priests are gone, uh, really. Um, and uh, it, it, we believe in the false falsehood of, of progress and change when really, really the truth is, is that we're, we're bound to cyclicality. The last last thing that's that's quite important from traditionalism is the claim also that in that state, in a dark age, you're going to see what they call inversion, which is that all the it, any any profession, any institution, any office, any claim that is made by society in the dark age is actually going to be covering the opposite. Hmm. Uh, anyone who is calling themselves a doctor and says they help people is actually probably making people sick. Uh, if someone is a professor like myself, I'm supposed to teach truth and knowledge. I probably am actually perpetuating stupidity in some way. Um, you know, uh, media misinforms, politicians misrepresent, militaries uh, do not defend their populations and things, things of that nature. Um, so we, you live in a world not just of borderlessness in their mind, but also a world of mirages where nothing is what it what it claims to be. It's it's usually the opposite of what it claims to be. That sets up uh, a traditionalist to look at our world and say, okay, globalization, feminism, multiculturalism, uh, migration, the intermingling of people, the predominance of political models, communism and democracy that are based not only on materialism, you know, either private property or the redistribution of wealth. But also gain they gain their legitimacy by amassing and quantifying bodies, mm. people. In other words, that's where political power comes from. Secularism, um, and allegedly a corrupt media, a corrupt university world, a corrupt government—you know, just complete corruption of an establishment. All of that gets this big grand narrative in traditionalism, and that's one of the reasons why it 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 tends to the political right. 
And if you inject it also with those racial uh, identity-based dimensions, it, it, it tends to the, the reactionary right. Right, so right. Long explanation, Billy, but no, no, no. It's perfect. It's it's yeah. um, and, and you know what I like about you, and this is the same for your book. It's palatable, you know. It's 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 palatable for mainstream to digest, right, and take it and understand it. And and you're putting it in plain terms, which everybody can understand. If I'm following, that means these people are following. Everybody that's listening. So yeah, thank no, thank you for that. No, and 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 uh, it's important because this is is uh, a key a concept that's that's playing into uh what we're dealing with today and people most people don't know about it so i i really want to get talk about that a little more i i want to um branch this over to people that uh uh that are recognizable worldwide today i want to talk about how that traditionalism uh, relates to them but also but before i go there i i do want to ask you about the concept that i read in your book that um like it's it goes beyond race it's a spiritual thing you know that that uh the the traditions are embedded in the spirit right yes. like and uh and uh for a lot of people that consider themselves traditionalists while they might look at the Aryan uh in 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 a at a higher level you know than uh than most um it's the spirit, it's the soul, right? That, that, that means something to them. And, and that, that takes it to another level. It takes it to an esoteric level and, a, and, a, and an occult level, in my opinion, you know, because these are concepts that are not concrete. You know, yes. the, the, you know the, the, the soul, you know, even though many people believe that we have one, I believe that we have one, that doesn't mean that we've proven this in any stretch. So there's, right. a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a belief in something more, something otherworldly, something... Uh, uh, other than human coming into play here to map out the destiny of traditionalism. If that makes any sense to you, please explain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, to, I, let me make it concrete and give a kind of a historical episode. So what, the traditionalist figure who brought these ideas into politics most, most plainly and directly was a guy named Julius Evola. He was a, um, he was a writer philosopher who collaborated with Mussolini um, in, in fascist Italy during World War II and tried to collaborate with the Nazis. Um, and, and people will say, okay, he's a fascist, but here's the thing. He looked, this guy, this traditionalist inspired guy looked at fascism and Nazism and he thought these things are good starts. This is a, <laughs> a promising beginning. The problem, the problem with, with, with Nazism and fascism was a, their racism was too modernistic and too scientific. It was too progressive. Mm. Um, and the the Nazis, in his mind, were obsessed with bodies. And they were obsessed with these scientific measures of race. They were studying skulls and, 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 and blood types and all this stuff. But when, when really, in his mind, the, the essence of race went beyond the body. And you had to think outside of modern, modern conceptions of, of uh, of race and body in order to in order to reach this higher state. Right. Um, he also, by the way, thought that they were they were too secular. They didn't have enough uh, religion in their societies. They were too um, devout, devoted to making uh, a, a sort of leveled hom homogenous society within their borders. You know, everybody's a everybody's an Italian. Everybody's a German. Um, right. When really he wanted to see a more hierarchical, internally diverse structure to a society. 
So he thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll go in there, and if I can turn Nazi Germany and fascist Italy into theocracies, um, then we will have returned ourselves to a golden age in the reign of the Brahmins. We will have unwound society and reversed the current of the time cycle. It would have been just, you know, in his mind, an incredible thing. But the at, at the center, that conception of race was all about all about saying that you know you have to think more deeply about what race is and you all are too scientific that's not i i you know i would caution listeners that's not a more inclusive understanding of race Mm. in his mind uh true racial expression would begin with the body and it would proceed to spirit and to soul perhaps to a sort of collective spiritual racial consciousness which in other instances he thought could be aroused by war and and it's and he he writes occasionally that that someone might have the ba- the body of one racial identity but the but the soul and the spirit of another and that could be a, a uh, an uplifting um an aggrandizing move but but typically not in the the standard order was that you still had a sort of exclusive notion of of race that simply manifest in more ways than simply the, than than what the nazis were willing to to consider yeah, man. Um, I think that's a very good, good, uh, good point to make. That um, maybe it's not all inclusive because you hear that and it's like, oh well, that you know that, <laughs> that right, right, right. It sounds good, you know, but um, not necessarily the case. Now, for the you know, we only have an hour, so in in the interest of time, and sure. hopefully you get to come back and, and we get to ask you more questions whenever you can. Uh, I'm I'm very much enjoying this, and there's so much more, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. to talk about. But uh, for this one-on-one, let, let's bridge it over. So traditionalism, Steve Bannon, you spent a lot of time with the guy. Yeah. Uh, people that are listening to this podcast are familiar with Steve to a certain extent. They know who he is. They know what he's done. Cambridge Analytica, the founding of it, the getting Donald Trump, you know, and the whole deal. And I want to talk about a little bit of all that. Yeah. But um, do you feel, and I think you, I, I think you do, but I'm asking this anyway. Steve Bannon is is a traditionalist, right? I mean, he's like in in the most uh, plain uh, version of the word. It's good that you ask because this is another question without a straightforward a straightforward answer. I'm mm-hmm. not my role as a commentator. I'm not that interested in policing who is and who is not a traditionalist. One right. reason this is kind of because I'm. I'm an anthropologist, ethnographer, but those definitions, I could sit with a book and wave a book around and say, okay, you don't believe this and this and this, and therefore you're not. And and my words will have no consequence for the universe. No one cared. What matters is what people out there living in the world think about these definitions. So Steve Bannon, to me, um, he calls himself to me a traditionalist in certain ways and he'll qualify it, but he'll say, yes, I'm a traditionalist in these ways. So that's, that's a yes. If someone not just consumes a body of media or literature or philosophy, but celebrates it, if someone not only celebrates it, but let's say socializes around their enthusiasm for the philosophy, if they go out and meet other people and coordinate with them, if they not if they not only do that, but they try to act on behalf of their shared beliefs with other people and their enthusiasm for the set of set of ideas, there's no way that I'm gonna I'm gonna 
turn around and say, oh, you're not a real traditionalist. Right. Because what they're, what they're doing will also, we'll probably talk about Alexander Dugan, but right. you know, his, some of these figures, if, if they break with an older dogma of traditionalism and they go out in the world and do something different, they, what ends up happening is not that they leave traditionalism, they redefine it. <laughs> our, our definition, our understanding of it has to evolve. It has to evolve if we want to have any relevancy at all to actual actual human life and not the abstract world of a book, you know. So Bannon, uh, yeah, and I would add to that, all of these things are true in Bannon's case. It's also his interest, not just in traditionalism, but alternative spirituality, kind of the world that encompasses traditionalism. Right. It's been one of the few consistent things in his life. <laughs> Ben Ben Shapiro, who I'm sure is kind of known to your to your audience, this conservative yeah. commentator, you know, loves to point out that Bannon is like just a, a a drifter and a dilettante. That he, you know, he latches on to Sarah Palin, the Duck Dynasty guys, Donald Trump, you know, Cambridge Analytica. He rides these different waves until they start to fizzle, and then he jumps to something else. And that's been his entire life. You know, he's a Hollywood producer, Goldman Sachs, Breitbart. Throughout that entire time, back into the 80s, into the 70s, really the only thing that has stayed consistent as family, women, jobs, everything just moves out of his life, has been this interest. Mm -hmm. This is one of the only things you can point to. Right. So, so no, I, I give that explanation. I'm happy to give it, but I'm it, it's it's a pretty done deal for me. I get it. I get it. Um, now, Steve Bannon called Donald Trump the destroyer, right? Mm -hmm. Or he wanted him to be the destroyer, right? Because of this concept of uh, order out of chaos, right? Everything has to be brought down to be rebuilt. Yes. You know, almost like a build back better. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's the same kind. It's order out of chaos. And what we talk about here on the podcast and, and through the alternative media is, you know, the concept of order out of chaos and how it's being, you know, uh, thrust into the mainstream for people. And, and people are now starting to see what uh what's behind this and you know and, and the occult roots of it now um donald trump wasn't too happy with this according uh according to your book being called the, the destroyer but i think uh bannon was correct you know in, in my personal opinion regardless of that why is he looking to destroy to build up meaning what what are the roots of this for Steve Bannon? You know, what, why is he looking to do this? What is he trying to achieve? To what end? So think back to that time cycle we were talking about earlier. That's one of the right. concepts of traditionalism that he holds to most closely um, with, with the fewest caveats and qualifiers. He believes that in order for there to be a sort of renaissance of American society or world society, you will have to go through a period of destruction. Um, it's there, there's really no other way to do it. Um, he wasn't thinking along the terms of Julius Eva, who believed that you could kind of reverse time, you know, in the same way that Evola thought if if you turned if you turned uh, fascist Italy into a theocracy, you would have pulled things backwards into a golden age. He Bannon thinks no, you really we really need some mass destruction in order to push forward and get to a state of rebuilding. Yeah. Um, is he going to do that himself? Well, he doesn't quite have the power, although he has the plan. He has the idea. No, he thought that Donald Trump could come in and absolutely explode all of the institutions within the United States and globally that that serve as this um, he, as as this sort of cage 
uh, of of darkness in his mind that that are the epitome of a dark age that has leveled everything um has created mass societies where there is no real distinction where there is no sovereignty for um for smaller groups and entities and if if trump could destroy the republican party destroy the u.s federal government uh, break down all of its institutions uh, undermine multilateral cooperation in the world just just as you know prior to trump bannon was trying to see the european union uh explode in its right. smaller uh more more kind of segmented landscape of island states um take its place you would have you would have in, in effect seen seen what the cyclic time concept suggests which is that you break up the mass entity and in its place you see you see new structure you you take away that chaos which masquerades as order and requires you know requires a great deal of of intervention on part of of, of a multinational uh, entity in some way the united united nations or, or the u.s federal government or something like that break that apart and you will get actual order of a smaller scale um, that won't be as devote to as, as devoted to materialistic concern. That's what that's what Bannon was trying to do, and he was hoping Trump would do it for him. Yeah, uh, he was an instrument of of Bannon in in a lot of ways, in my view, Professor. Mm-hmm. I, it, uh, it was almost like the puppet master, even though it 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 strayed away from that later on. You know that when they when they fell apart, they fell off. But uh, you know, toward the twenty sixteen election, I, I felt. Bannon was the puppeteer, you mm-hmm. know, and, and using Trump in a, yep. in, in a lot of ways. I, what do you think about that? Oh, I think so. We have to look at it. We have to be, you know, very particular about what we think right. Bannon was trying to do and how he was using Trump. Bannon had had a narrative and had meaning to Trump, added meaning and narrative to Trump in ways that most most people, including Trump himself, I think, didn't. Right. We got little trickles of it. In public, Jared Kushner, in a, in a real famous exchange, got some insight into what Bannon really thought. There, this was this was when uh, <laughs> Syria was taking place, and Kushner was saying, "Oh, the United States has got to do something. Assad is just out of control." And and Bannon said, "Ah, you know what? We're just living in an age of darkness and chaos. You know, there's going to be a lot of death and destruction. There's nothing we can do about it." Wow. Which you know, he didn't give him the full traditionalist time cycle thing, but he gave him this attitude toward collapse and destruction that freaked him out right. and that was that was like one of the final straws for kushner he said we have a crazy person in the white house he's got to get out of here <laughs> uh, and he was out of there not you know not not long uh, not long after but but that's you know it's a, it's in that sense where you see trump who did not have i think a really elaborate vision for himself um who didn't for example look at the phrase make america great again and and seem to have a lot of depth to it for Bannon, that time cycle concept. He's, we had a conversation about that. The, the notion that American greatness is essentially eternal and out of time, that it's going to be a golden age that we keep returning to. It's always accessible to us if we want to get back to, and we get to it through destruction. Trump didn't have any of those ideas in his head. Right. He just happened to be there. And, and, and Bannon, in Bannon's mind, there's, there's some kind of cosmic es- eschatological forces at play here where he thinks that, the currents of time in some way brought Trump into this position. And, and it's, it also belongs to that prophecy that Trump has no clue what is, what his role in history is. The only thing he needs to do is to destroy with abandon. 
right. quite do it well enough in in bannon's mind right no 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 i, I get it it's like trump uh was the hammer to a nail, right? He just did, right? That 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 was the way it was described, right? That that he's the doer, not necessarily thinking about uh, what what came before him and what he stood for. He he just wanted to do, and he did. He doesn't right? need to know, right? What was that, sir? He doesn't need to know. No, he no, do. And, and Bannon was the guy that that knew. Yes, you know, um, and uh, and the, that's how that dynamic worked. Um, I want to talk about uh, Dugan real quick, who is described as the Bannon of Russia to mm -hmm. people here in the United States. Tell me, is that a valid description? And uh, both in your in your view, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, both of them did get together, as, as you detailed in the book a couple of times, you know, maybe more than that. And and, uh, and they had talks, you know, do you think uh, uh, and answer this if you can, but do you and this is all speculation, of course, you know, so um, but do you think that uh, both of them had a a laid out plan to carry out on behalf of traditionalism, on behalf of their ideas worldwide. Did they somehow come together and link up? Well, if we start with the first part, yeah, I mean, Dugan is there. There are a lot of respects in which Dugan is not the Bannon of Russia, but they're far less interesting to me to talk about than the ways in which he is. So, <laughs> okay, good. Um, he is a philosopher. Uh, a political operative, a propagandist, a media uh, personality, and also a sort of diplomat operating with mysterious mandate. Um, and uh, he absolutely considers himself a traditionalist for, for decades, has been writing, translating traditionalist literature. But his key intervention in all this is that he he said, especially in the, in the end of the 90s and going to the, the present, that you can read traditionalism's opposition between the dark age and the golden age, between an age of tradition in the past and the age of modernity today, you can take all those oppositions and put them onto a map, a literal, a geographic map. And the way it works is that Russia represents, and Eurasia represents tradition, the golden age in the past, and the United States and the Atlantic world represents modernity. Um, and in, he has explanations for how this literally has to do with the the geography, the terrain of the two areas, that, that the seafaring, liquid, unstable, traveling, gallivanting, cosmopolitan world of the West is, is going to tend toward progress, beliefs in, um, you know, emancipation and enlightenment in the future and, and the past being stupid uh, and, and unjust and ignorant. Um, that's going to be the West, whereas, whereas Eurasia, which is more fixed, is going to play is is going to pay more tribute to continuity, toward holism, toward groups, toward cohesion, uh, toward preservation and conservation of older ideas. So, I mean, with that, he he started to provide uh, to Russia, to popular mainstream society, and even to more elite circles, uh, the idea that Russian imperialism had a, a sort of spiritual dimension to it and a cultural justification. Uh, to it, and he he didn't devise that out of any out of thin air, but but he still is 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 a was a key voice in spreading those ideas. Right, he was accredited for it. Go ahead. Absolutely, yeah, and he and yeah, he he did a lot. So he was never a, a, an advisor to Putin. He was sometimes described as Putin's Rasputin, and that's yeah. that's not true. But he he served a similar function to Bannon in in narrativizing, providing story to the actions of a state actor. And, and, uh, and we should, we should never, I, I fear a lot of my 
political science colleagues, for example, in the university world, tend to overlook the importance of story and narrative to actions. And we, we should never do that. Look at looking at what's happened with Zelensky. That's for, what I was about to bring up. Go ahead. Ukraine. I mean, we have this, you have a story around him and it has that moved actual support internationally for him. Absolutely. It has. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. So Dugan moves, uh, uh, moves throughout his career. Uh, he ends up, I think being more influential as a political operative on the international stage, forming links between Russia and other actors, partially the European far right, partially Turkey, um, Pakistan, maybe to a, a lesser extent, uh, Iran, um, all, tr all trying to unite opponents of um, the liberal democratic West in the United States in particular, seeing if you can get the European far right, Turks, uh, Islamists, communists, uh, you know, far-right neo-Nazis around the world, get them all together to form uh, a boundary uh, to establish a border against the expansion of American hegemony. That's That's been his goal. And, and he typically defined America as being nothing other than liberalism, uh, lowercase l, the sort of liberalism that has to do with individualism, progress, free markets, um, uh, and when he meets Bannon, when the two of them get together and they, they both consider themselves followers of the same traditionalist thrust, Bannon attempts to convince Dugan, one, that America actually has a traditional, unchanging, eternal essence to it that is more than just the documents of our, of our constitution, which are all liberal, um, you know, enlightenment-inspired concepts. Um, and in Bannon's mind, that American essence has to do with um, a sort of revolutionary spiritualism, um, you know, that our country prior to the revolution was founded by, in his mind, um, by these Puritan sects who came to this world in order to have a more direct connection with God. Right. That's, that's American. And establishing the, the March West, you had saloons, brothels, and always a church in any, any <laughs> town that comes up. <laughs> tries to convince Dugan of that, and he tries to convince Dugan in particular that he should, because with this new expression of a deeper Americanism, he should change his geopolitics, not fight against the United States, but instead see that the United States is Christian and nationalistic in its core, and that together with Russia, they could form a united front against what, what Bannon thought is the ultimate globalizing, leveling, materialistic evil in the world, which is China, not the United States. Wow. There you go. That's the cliffhanger, ladies and gents. We're going to leave it right at that. <laughs> I wish, I wish we could get into more. It's my fault, not the professor's fault. I have to go. But, um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but fantastic, fantastic stuff. Thank you for coming. We, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us really. And, and hopefully we can get you back and we can pick up on the China point because of course we know where that goes. That, that, that's an episode all in itself. Um, but uh, love your work. Love what you're doing. Thank you for taking the time. Please tell people where they can find you and your books. Absolutely. You can find me BenjaminTitlebaum.com and you can find War for Eternity any place fine books are sold. All right. There you go. Ben, hang out for just a second. Don't, don't go anywhere. It is The it. Infinite Fringe. My name is Billy Ray Valentine. Make sure you check out America Unplugged every uh, Saturday at 12 p.m. Eastern on Rockfin. And uh, make sure you stay uh, hooked right here to the Infinite Fringe uh, dot Podbeam .com and the Infinite Fringe on Apple Podcasts, where you can find episodes 
you know how we do it. It's been a little inconsistent, but but but, but it's coming. We're, we're trying to level it out. Uh, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate each and every one of you. Don't burn the place down while I'm gone. Check you in a sec. Bye-bye.